Hello everybody and welcome to WTS Pod. My name's Danny Murray. I'm Graham Merrigan. How are you, bud? I'm good, how are you? Absolutely tremendous. Meryl, where are we coming from on this fine, fine evening? The beautiful surroundings of its Patrick's Castle Hotel Club. Yes, indeed. Lovely people. Unbelievable people. I, I, for, I forgot to book around mm. this week and they were still so accommodating. They were. They were brilliant. They put us into one of our recently refurbished meeting yeah. rooms. Big fancy screens. Absolutely beautiful, man. The lick of paint and the, the facelift and the carpet. Fresh carpet. As you said, big, big screens there for people to worldly put up their slides if they're yeah. having a meeting that involves slides yeah. or for video conferencing and the like. Yeah. Beautiful Stunning. setup. And my favourite part of the summer is back, thanks to Fitzpatrick Castle Graham. The bottomless, bottomless barbecue. barbecue. Bottomless Prosecco, bottomless food, lads, 32 quid. Unbelievable. Is it on Fridays, is it? Every Friday for the rest of the summer, yeah. Um, you, you can ring in advance and book your place, or you can rock up on the night, but if it's full and you rock up, unfortunately you'll be torn away. So you're better off ringing in advance or getting in touch in advance to book your spot, lads. Bottomless Barbecue, FitzpatrickCastle.com on the internet. I'm really excited about this week's episode. You are. Contain yourself for a minute. I'm Contain very excited. Contain yourself. Um, um, our, our guest this week, for, I first kind of start seeing their guest in interviews maybe mid-late 90s. Yeah. I always took notice of the way he, how well he spoke. Very articulate. Very Republican, mm. like myself. Yeah. And just, honestly, not bi- not being biased, but no, wiping no, no. the floor in debates with people. Mm. Having articulate responses and yeah. responses that make loads of sense. Mm. I was thinking, this, this guy's great. Um, Our guest is... Danny Morrison. Danny Morrison. Yeah, who um, is an author of, I think he told us, seven books. Seven books, yeah. Um, Former IRA volunteer. Yeah, um, press secretary for Sinn Féin from 1979 to 1992, did he say, or something like that? I think it was, yeah. Up until he was arrested himself. a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, An editor of... uh, On Public. On Public as well, the the Sinn Féin and Republican newspaper. Um. Yeah, th- th- this is clearly one of Merrow's guests. Um, you know. I was wondering at what point was this going to be, like, you were going to say that. No, like, like, look, here's the thing with it, you know what I mean? This podcast, Graham, is about all stories from all areas, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I wouldn't mind getting a unionist on it. You know, like, I, I may not fully politically agree with everything that Sinn Féin say and do, but at the same time, I've... You're turning, though. Since you start seeing me on a full-time basis. Yeah, since me and you start going out with each other now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like as, and as I mentioned in the chat with Danny, with, with Jerry Adams maybe stepping aside mm. from the helm a little bit, even if it is only optics, I think optics help perception and perception is reality, you know? Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, but, I mean, the, the polls show that that's that's after having a significant effect already. absolutely yeah yeah she's the second most popular leader in the country at the moment yeah you know and um mary Lou. she is yeah and first she, woman taoiseach i mean let, i won't rule it out but I won't, <laughs> I, I won't put money on it either um but yeah look uh it was a great chat with danny so you know but um this is wts one are we, are we going straight into it we go straight into it jesus yeah, all right, what else did you want to say you said you were, you were saying there we were going out. Yeah, I can't even remember what you're talking about. To be honest with you, we're going out. Doesn't yeah. matter. Doesn't matter. We don't. We, it's it's been a long evening for us. It has. We don't need a long intro to this one. We'll you know. We f- don't. It's been a long evening. I was at the gym. I started yeah. a new program. I've called it hashtag Repeal the Weight. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I'm wrecked I love that I love that um, yeah I'm just busy trying to get me gaffs ordered to be honest yeah. with you so yeah anyway. gaffs what I tell you what yeah um, yeah so our guest this week is Danny Morrison um, you can check him out on Twitter as Malloy1916 or go to dannymorrison.com um, where you can buy one of his several books buy them all you know so and he did mention to us that one is being relaunched this summer as well mm. Um so you'll be able to get that it's called the wrong man it was out of circulation but now it's back for the summer due to demand so you'll be able to get a copy of that and perhaps it'll be a summer bestseller mm. who knows who knows but anyway enjoy danny morrison we're joined this week by Danny Morrison, who uh, for a long time now has been involved in the Republican movement. And with it being 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, we thought who better to talk to than a man who has uh, been involved in almost every aspect of that movement um, since the 60s. So, Danny, firstly, thanks man, for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, so, so look, the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, like, look, it's 20 years old now. It's arguably one of the most important and historic documents in Irish history. Um, and you kind of lived through everything that built up to it and, and obviously the aftermath since. Did you ever think we'd get to the point of the Good Friday Agreement being signed? Well, I need to sort of go back a little bit because when the IRA called it ceasefire... I was in the H-blocks of long care serving an eight-year sentence. Mm. That would have been August 1994. But even at that stage, and whilst in jail, uh, some of this information is published in a, in a book of mine, Then the Walls Came Down, I was off the view around about 91, 92, that although the IRA was extremely well-armed, it had received several major shipments before the capture of the accident, and it had enough military uh, wherewithal to probably continue an armed struggle for maybe 15 or 20 years, I was of the opinion that there was a military stalemate. And I also read in papers like the London Independent, senior military figures also state that they couldn't defeat the IRA. And I thought that that changed the situation because if the IRA was admitting privately that uh, it, could, it could fight on for another 20 years but without necessarily improving the position of the nationalist community or the negotiating position of the nationalist community, then there was a, a moral a sense kicked in that uh, there was a need for, I believe, negotiations and compromise. And I, I mentioned this in that book in 1982. So when 1984 came, I, I, was, in, I was with Pat Sheehan, who was back in 1981, who was the man who was longest on the hunger strike when it ended in October 1981. Pat was in doing his second 20-year stretch uh, at that stage. And I was of the view that we would we would be compromising. I was also of the view that in all likelihood, it would result in an assembly in the North. So I certainly was of the mindset that I was prepared uh, for a compromise along the lines of something that would emerge as, as the Good Friday Agreement. Now, obviously, there was things that happened along the way that I wasn't pleased with. Uh, for example, when the IRA was involved in, in private talks with the British, the British never brought up any conditions about that Sinn Féin would have to go through a period of decontamination, that the IRA would have to surrender its weapons. None of these things were mentioned until the ceasefire. 
and then uh, it was used by John Major to keep Sinn Féin out of talks for 18 months and that of course led to a breakdown of the ceasefire but when it's, not, it's now 20 years old uh, it has achieved some things but it hasn't been it hasn't achieved all of the things that we hoped it would achieve uh, the, the DUP are still uh, and uh, abused the process so much that it led 18 months ago to the to, to the collapse of the executive and to mm. the assembly. Uh, Danny, you just said there about John Major gave a condition that Sinn Féin weren't going to be involved in talks for 18 months. Looking back now, that just seems ridiculous. Well, I mean, the, the British government position down the years has been ridiculous. Let me give you an example. In 1972, which is... I mean, I was in turn in 1972 at the age of 19. That was the year that I first met Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams was released from internment uh, to take part in a Republican leadership delegation who, and was flown to London in an RAF helicopter to meet the then British Secretary of State, uh, William Whitelaw, and junior ministers to discuss a ceasefire and to discuss a peace process. Fast forward, so that was 1972. Fast forward to 1982 and 1983, when Adams is firstly elected to the Assembly, and then in 1983 becomes the MP for West Belfast. When he has a mandate, then they refuse to talk to him. Haven't spoken to him 10 years earlier when he had no mandate. And of course, he was subject to an exclusion order from Britain, as I was after I was elected. Had I, for 15 years, I was banned from entering Britain, even though we were supposed to be British citizens. And had I breached that to go over and speak in London, I would have been sentenced to five years in jail. Adams was subject to exclusion order, and then later, of course, they introduced the broadcasting ban, where we, despite the fact that we had a mandate, couldn't be heard on radio or television. So this is the way the British distorted the the and, and in my opinion also exacerbated the conflict because they left they left no channel open for there to be uh, peaceful negotiations. And Danny, I'm I maybe jumping a little bit here, but uh, when you say they they kind of had this this ban on you guys and and i remember you know i've seen footage where they've had this darkened out shadow on tv screens with uh with a voiceover for jerry adams and that was there ever talk um of Sinn fein ending its policy of not taking a seat in westminster as a way to have their voice put across in london and, and across britain well i am uh, totally opposed to an end of abstentionism in Westminster. The policy is 100 years old. It mm. was adopted by the uh, Sinn Féin, who were elected after the First World War in December 1918. In fact, this, this December will be the centenary of abs active abstentionism when Sinn Féin set up a Doyle Urn in Dublin and declared independence from England. And of course, the, the TDs that were elected were hounded, were shot in the street. Some of them were interned and ended up in, in, in prison camps in, in England. But the reason why I would uh, be opposed to taking seats at Westminster is that we can hardly complain about Britain interfering in our affairs if then we go over there and interfere in their affairs and take part in legislating for a people who we, do, we have no moral right to rule over, be it the Scottish, the Welsh or the English. Uh, and I think that that opposition has been endorsed to the extent that in the last Westminster election, uh, the SDLP had nobody elected 
and Sinn Féin took seven seats. So the people knew what the Sinn Féin manifesto was and they voted overwhelmingly not to go into an English parliament. So there's no support for it in the nationalist community. Your argument that if you were there, you would be heard. Mm. Have you ever seen Westminster when <laughs> Ireland comes up for discussion? It's empty. It's an echo chamber. There's about three people there. Nobody, nobody listens. Nobody's interested. Now, of course, currently, Theresa May, of course, has a vested interest in keeping sweet the 10 DUP MPs. But that was only for a, a short time. That is temporary. And I, I have to look at history in the long term. And again, I just think it would not be morally right position. I couldn't subsequently complain about Britain interfering in our affairs if I was to go into Westminster and interfere in theirs. Fair enough. That's fair yeah, enough. That's a fair uh, point, yeah. What I was going to say to you there, Danny, was with the Good Friday Agreement being signed, do you think, do you think that could have been signed sooner? Or did the British delay it? Because you mentioned there about uh, Jerry Adams being airlifted in 1972 to London and then in 1982 being elected, 83 being elected and then not being given the same kind of electoral rights as, an, as another MP. Um, do you think they just kind of delayed it all the time just to save face? Well, no. They, 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 you must understand, and this is because of course the Section 31 of the RTE broadcasting ban, the, the public in, in, the, in the south of Ireland, 26 counties, had also a distorted image and picture of what was happening in the north. Because, you, I mean, you had a ridiculous situation where, for example, when Owen Caron uh, was elected, Owen Caron had been Bobby Sands' election agent, and after Bobby died on hunger strike, Thatcher uh, introduced a new law banning prisoners from, from standing for seats. So that's why Owen Caron was put forward. When Owen got elected, the day that Owen got elected, RTE interviewed the loser, Ken McGuinness, who had been in the UDR. Uh, and that down south, that, I mean, this is long before there's many, before there was uh, uh, lots of television stations, of course. There was only an RT1 and RT2. But people down south were led to believe that the Republicans were the baddies and the Unionists were hard done by. And the poor Brits were in the middle trying to keep uh, two war and tribal communities apart. It was a complete lie. So what, the reason why we didn't have a peace process is because, of course, the IRA was active, but the IRA was active because the British Army itself was still pursuing a military victory over the Republicans. And in doing that, they were involved in uh, lots of, a, a dirty war, the truth of which we still uh, can't get to the bottom of. For example, Sir John Stevens, who was head of the London Metropolitan Police, we were promised he came over here to investigate allegations of collusion between the RUC, the British Army, and loyalist paramilitaries. He thought he was going to be here for about five months. He was here in total for 15 years. Oh, my God. As part of the peace process, we were, we were told that he was going to be allowed to publish his report. He was only allowed to publish 17 pages out of a 3,000-page report. So the lo those loyalists that were involved in killing Republicans and, and in assassinating nationalists they actually were being run by the British state. Similarly, the Dublin bombings, the British government refused to cooperate uh, with the inquiry into the uh, Dublin Monaghan bombings because it's, it's well, well known uh, that the British intelligence services were running the UVF and running uh, UVF agents that were involved in, in bombing the capital of Ireland. And, but it 
didn't suit the Dublin government because it didn't have the courage to stand up to the British. It was much easier to pick on the Northern Republicans, much easier to suppress them than to face the real problem in this country. So the reason why the war went on so long is because the British government were not prepared to talk. They were not prepared to compromise. They still, they did the same in the H-blocks. They thought they could crucify those prisoners, break their morale, and uh, that would have an effect on the morale of the Republican community on the outside. And yet, if 10 men died, I went into that prison to serve an eight-year sentence a few years later, and all of the things that the British government had refused to concede during the hunger strike, we had. We didn't have to do prison work. We wore our own clothes. I wrote two books while I was in jail. I did an open university course. Uh, I was able to uh, use the exercise yard. There were no beatings. Uh, there were no prison officers being attacked. Uh, and all because they chose to declare that suddenly, from the 1st of March 1976, uh, everybody was a criminal that was involved here. They did the same, of course, with, and caused hunger strikes. Thomas Ash died 100, 101 years ago. Thomas Ash refused to be criminalised. Uh, Terence McSweeney refused to be criminalised. So it wasn't as if they didn't know that Republican prisoners would react against uh, being, being uh, persecuted in prison. They knew that, but they decided to go down that road because they thought they could win. And they lost, whether it was a great, great cost to our community and, of course, to others who lost their lives, including prison officers. And Danny, you, you mentioned there it was kind of the, the early 90s when, when you started to think that, you know, the the or, or you mentioned earlier rather that, you know, it was a military stalemate and perhaps the appetite was there for the, the peace negotiations. Do you think it, it could have happened sooner than that or was it literally that it had just built and built and then, as you said, like you went into the prison um, some years after the hunger strikers and it was only at that point that the appetite for, you know, change or for peace was starting to creep into the mentality of both sides or is that a fair kind of... Um, well, yeah, the problem. Well, you know, some people have compared the Good Friday Agreement to the Sunningdale Agreement, but yeah. the, but they're not com they're not comparable because I, I was in jail when the Sunningdale Agreement was signed. Internment was continuing. The special branch were still beating people up and interrogating people. The British Army was still on the streets. The Prevention of Terrorism Act, the Emergency Provisions Act, the military occupation of our areas. All of this was continuing hand in hand with, so what the British were doing, in my opinion, they were trying to draw in the Irish government, they were trying to draw in the SDLP to into institutions at the same time as they were pursuing a military war against the Republican movement. So it wasn't an honest attempt to resolve the conflict. We still had discrimination. We still, we hadn't achieved fair employment. Uh, all of these problems were continuing, and it wasn't until the British themselves realised slowly and began to admit, we cannot win, we're going to have to talk. And it was with the election in 1997 of Tony Blair, who I'm highly critical of for his other military adventures abroad, for example in Iraq, but when Tony Blair and Labour came into power in June 1997, that transformed things. Bill Clinton was the president of the states. So was this alignment of people, Bertie Ahern in the south, the, uh, earlier there had Albert Reynolds, there was Bertie Ahern, there was Tony Blair, uh, there was Bill Clinton, 
and they transformed the situation because they facilitated they realized that uh, there had to be compromise here to the extent you know that uh, the RUC uh, were abolished and we had a new policing service which we've tried to you know tried to encourage people to become involved with even though there, there's, there's still problems uh, associated and an imbalance in the recruitment figures from the nationalist community and then of course uh, the occasional dissident attacks particularly targeted against uh, members of the PSNI who came from the nationalist community. But it wasn't until we got all of those things right. Uh, so, yes, it could have come earlier if the British government had been serious about peace, but they weren't. They were still trying to pursue a victory uh, because they don't like being defeated, nor do, nor do they like having to compromise. But they had to be brought to that point. And I would argue that that was the reason why the conflict went on for so long, and also because successive Dublin governments allowed the British government away with it. Man, it's mad. It's just hearing it from yourself. It's I'm, I'm listening to it as if I'm not part of the interview, and it's I'm listening to another podcast. <laughs> I'm just engrossed. Um, you know, Danny, with with um, down south um, during the kind of the eighties, um, in terms of. I suppose people thinking that republicanism was the enemy and as you said there they interviewed um, the loser of the election um, was that the time where you were the publicity director of Sinn Féin? Well I, I was the director of publicity from 1979 until my arrest in 1990 Okay so That was the period During that period did you have to kind of act? were you trying to actively Get support from the public down south, and was that a? If so, was was what was that a challenge, or what challenges were there? Well, we had to rely. I mean, obviously, we we had our own weekly newspaper uh, on Fublox, Republican yeah. News, which I was the editor of. It it was a merger of two papers on Fublox, which was largely southern based, and Republican News, which was based within about ten or eleven counties in the north. They merged in February '79. I was the the first editor of that paper and we began to uh, increasingly promote coverage of uh, trade union activity, rural issues, social issues, uh, feminist issues. Uh, I mean, we, we were very early on, even ahead of Sinn Féin national policy. I mean, we were calling for divorce at that stage that people tried to, to divorce uh, from 78, 79 onwards. And uh, we relied upon public meetings, of course. But, I mean, I, I, the amount of times that I was arrested uh, coming from public meetings, uh, the level of guard and harassment, especially the special branch, was, was incredible. I mean, I remember uh, Desi O'Malley, who I think might have been still been in the Fianna Fáil, or else he had just formed PD, the P, uh, Progressive Democrats. And he issued a statement, uh, he made a statement in Leinster House, and he said that he was having an argument with the government. And he says, let's face it, he was actually calling for more, uh, more oppression of, of, of Republicans. He says, let's face it, the IRA calls the shots. So that week, I put on the front page of Infoblock, the IRA calls the shots. And a young newspaper seller called Don O'Leary from Cooper was arrested with a copy of a, photo, a poster made from that front page and he was sentenced to five years in jail. 
for the words of for, for the words of O'Malley had made in Leinster House, and that was the level of uh, repression. I mean, I know another young a young student, uh, and the Spicer Branch. He was at Trinity College. Spicer Branch visited his house and said, to "This family, we we know we understand you're getting an extension done to the house. You wanted to go through. Well, you need to you need to tell him not to be hanging about with those provosts at Trinity College. And this is all low level." unreported harassment uh, and we, we were always demonized we were the troublemakers and yet if you go back and look at how the conflict broke out of here broke out it was a civil rights struggle it was beaten into the ground and uh, the first 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 civilian to be killed Sammy Devaney beaten to death at his home by the IUC in the fog side nobody arrested nobody charged the next series of killings, eight people in Belfast, include nine-year-old Patrick Rooney, shot dead in his bed by the IUC in August 1969. In fact, there was so much pressure on the British, the Irish government at that stage, uh, Patrick Hillary at the United Nations, wanted the United Nations to come in, which is why, to preempt that, the British army were sent in here. But we were also promised investigations into the death. So they brought over a policeman from London, Sir Arthur Young, who and, and started to inquire into the, the, the killing of nine-year-old Patrick, Patrick Rooney in his bed. And he issued a statement saying that he met with a conspiracy of silence within the IUC. So nobody arrested, nobody charged. Yes, that's when the IRA starts reorganizing in the autumn of 1969, because <laughs> hundreds of people had been born out of their homes. and Thousands had fled south into refugee camps. So you have the position where the IRA reorganising, they also split. And one of the issues is over the lack of defence of nationalist areas. That was one of the reasons for the splits. There were several other reasons as well, which I don't have time to go into. But then in July 1970, the British Army surrounds the Falls Road. 10,000 people gases them from helicopters, shoots anybody that comes out of the house, shoots dead five people including the first journalist to be killed during the troubles, Polish photographer, was shot dead by the British Army. And they curfew the people of the Falls Road. They're not allowed to go to Mass. They're not allowed to bury their dead. They can't come out of the houses. And this was the raid against guns, which had never been used against the British Army. So that was the end. As far as young people, I was 17 to 10. As far as my generation was concerned, that was the end. These, the soldiers weren't here to protect us. They were here to protect the Unionist state. And it was from that period. And incidentally, when the IRA starts shooting, takes out its guns and starts shooting, it's then that the word violence appears in the media. So the RUC killing uh, killing Patrick Rooney or killing John, shooting dead John Gallagher in Armagh or beating to death Sammy Devaney in his house. And the British Army gassing the people of the falls, shooting dead five people and wounding 30 others. That is not violence. The word violence doesn't creep into the lexicon until the IRA emerges. So my, my point is this. Yes, awful things happen subsequently in the conflict. Unconstable things happen on all sides. All of these things happen. But let's go back to how it started, who started it. And that's, that's then you come to find, that's, that leads you towards the solution. And the solution is the injustice that was here that was perpetuated on my people. You know, we made up, when this statement, this artificial statement 
called Northern Ireland was created in 1921, we made up a third of the population. But we made up two-thirds of those who immigrated because no houses were built in our areas, no factories were located in our areas, been a complete ban. I mean, they built a motorway to Dungannon instead of to, to, to Dublin. That's where the way the unionists uh, controlled this place. And in the whole 50 years, of, up until 1971, in the whole 50 years when nationalist MPs went into Stormont to try to change things, they were only allowed to change a single piece of legislation about the protection of wild ducks. <laughs> That's the sole piece of legislation that our representatives were, were, were you know, allowed to do in all of those years. And when I was a kid, the Orange Order marched on the Falls Road. They marched up Broadway onto the Falls Road into uh, a Presbyterian church, which is now called Unculturland. It's now, ironically, an Irish language centre. But they would march <laughs> up. The, 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 the red, white and blue flag was put up on the Falls Road. We had to stand there like idiots because we were vanquished. They played God Save the Queen. They marched into the church, got their banners blessed. They came out of the church and went back down Broadway towards the village. Because, you see, all of the repression, all of the, the laws they had weren't enough. So they had to introduce another law in 1954 called the Flags and Emblems Act, in which it was illegal to interfere in the flying of the Union Jack, and it was illegal to fly the tricolour. And, of course, the... One of the, the effects of this was when the general election was taking place in 1964, I remember it well. Sinn Féin was banned, so they had to stand, their, their candidate had to stand as an independent. His election offices was in Divis Street, 100% nationalist. They put a tricolour in the window, and Ian Paisley threatened to bring 5,000 loyalists onto the Falls Road to take the tricolour out. The RUC didn't. And so the RUC came in, sledgehammered the door, and seized the tricolour. So the people put the tricolour back in the window, cops came back the next night, smashed it again, seized the tricolour, a rat broke out, which lasted for a week, and about 60 to 70 young people ended up going to jail for three months, six months. Interestingly, because I was writing a story about this a few years ago, after the Denver Street Rats, I went through the newspapers for the names of some of the people who were arrested and who did time, and discovered that, for example, that Brian Keenan, who later emerges as the Chief of Staff of the IRA in the 1990s, is arrested. He's a married man with two children, 22, 23 years of age. And you can see the effect of this, that uh, the troubles just didn't start in 1969 or 1968. The, the, the source of the conflict is the fact that we, were, we in the North, we nationalists, were sacrificed so the 26 counties could have its freedom. And what annoys me most is that for rebelling against that injustice and the discrimination and the repression and the policy of immigration which saw many of our people leave for Australia or for America, for rebelling against that, the South, the Southern establishment, then demonizes us. So they get involved in all sorts of convoluted positions that what the IRA was doing in the North wasn't the same as what the IRA was doing in 1919 or 1920. You know, it's dead simple. If Michael Collins had had Semtex, he would have used it. If Michael Collins had had RPG-7s, he would have used it. Pat McGee was sentenced to five life, uh, life sentences for 
blowing up, trying to kill Mrs. Thatcher at the Grand Hotel in Brighton. Cahill Bruja in 1919-1920 had suggested to the IRA, let's go into the House of Commons and from the public gallery, machine gun that all of these government ministers that are involved in sending the auxiliaries and the black and tans in Ireland. So there's huge parallels. Uh, and we resisted because we felt there was no other choice. We Now, not everybody fought, of course. The SDLP weren't involved in, in resisting British rule. But my generation uh, felt that we had no other choice and and we took on the, the British army and the British and the British government and the Th- British establishment. That's 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 one of the kind of uh, down south um, the government down south. They kind of use that against um, Sinn Fein all the time and the IRA in terms of you know well look John Hume Seamus Mallon they they didn't take up arms. Um, what why did these these guys take up arms? They that that con is continuously always used. Even at the uh, re- uh, reunion there, uh, two or three months ago, Seamus Mallon was still using that um, kind of line of you know we worked so hard. Well, first of all, well, yeah. first of all, uh, it's uh, uh, let me give you an example. In July nineteen seventy one, when Brian Faulkner, who was then Stormont Prime Minister offered the SDLP a couple of minor positions on committees. Paddy Devlin from the SDLP got up and said, this is Brand Faulkner's finest star. This is brilliant what they're doing. And that was July uh, 1971. How come two years later, the SDLP is able to argue at Sunningdale for Parshurn, for Council of Ireland? It's because in the meantime, the armed struggle had changed the dynamic and had given to the nationalist community extra negotiating power, which the SDLP had capitalised on for political ends, which was their entitlement. I know that the the SDLP didn't take part uh, in the struggle, although some of their supporters would have been sympathetic to, for example, prisoners and sometimes to IRA actions. But it was our mandate in the North came from the oppressed people, the people of the Falls Road, people of the Bogside, people of Tyrone, people of South Derry, people of South Armagh. That's where the resistance came from. And since 2001, uh, the nationalist community endorsed Sinn Féin as their leadership. Sinn Féin, you know, uh, is the major party representing the nationalist community. Now, I am not saying and nor would it be correct to claim that that retrospectively endorses the armed struggle. It doesn't. It doesn't. But I would also say that in the during the time of the Tan War between 1919 and 1921, you probably had got huge swathes of society which did not support what the IRA was doing either. And either they were quiescent or they felt they couldn't do nothing about it. They were resigned to the situation. So there are parallels. But at the end of the day, once partition was created, we were in a particular situation which had us cornered. The people in the 26 counties, you know, once the Civil War was over, had had a, a state that they could work with. And one of the things that makes me so angry today is when I hear people referring to Ireland when they mean the 26 counties, and they refer to Northern Ireland, 
as if there are two countries, two nations on this island, which is not the case. And I think that people use that deliberately because they want to. They want to, like, for example, national wage agreements, the national transport system, you know, they all stop at the dock. It's as if, it's in, it's, and it is in the government's interest to have people think that the state, the Republic of Ireland, is Ireland. And that what's beyond it is just a problem that has to be dealt with in some shape or form. But we're entitled to the same standards because I am as Irish as as, as you are, Graham, uh, or as you are, Danny. Uh, in fact, some would say because of what we've had to go through, we've had to demonstrate how Irish we are uh, throughout our lives. Yeah, Danny, I'm curious because you've kind of touched on it a little bit, and it's something that strikes me: is are you worried at all in the context of history that pre uh, the Irish Free State being established, and, and you mentioned the Tan War and that. But it's almost as if the the actions of um, you know Republicans and the actions of Sinn Fein of nineteen eighteen and that are glorified. Yet now, in the context of history again, it's almost as if the actions of Sinn Fein and this idea of balance, as you said, from nineteen sixty nine on, all these things are kind of diluted in how history is taught in schools. And this idea of a kind of you know a watered down version of events that's slightly more malleable um, and you're only taught about kind of a significant part of the Good Friday Agreement that you're taught about, or sorry, a, a less significant part of the build-up to the Good Friday Agreement and that kind of thing. Is that something that you think is important for younger generations in terms of knowing where things have come from and how they've got to where they are today? Absolutely. I think young people... Uh, have to discover these things for themselves. They're not going to discover it in the pages of the newspapers and they're not going to discover it in the mainstream media. The best way they can discover it is by getting on a bus and going up to Cross McGlen or going to Ballamurphy or going to the Bogside and just stopping and talking to people or going to a bar and talk to people. And that's where they'll get their eyes open because they will hear story after story of uh, suffering and resistance. And uh, great courage uh, uh, that the people have come through, and you know the people are the people have have come through and are very proud of the resistance they put up. It's it's tragic, and I would be very careful that we do not glorify uh, violence per se. Uh, but I do think that the the likes of the establishment parties in the south, you know, they tied themselves up in knots trying to distinguish between fighting for freedom and at a convenient period, you know, which was 80 years away or 90 years away from today, and the more recent uh, period of fighting for freedom, which is inconvenient for them. I, in order to counter this, about 35 years ago or 30 years ago, I brought out a book called The Good Old IRA, mm. in which I, 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 I printed... Uh, you know, some of the most egregious things that the IRA did at that time, to point out that the, the war back then, any war, any conflict, has these unconscionable dimensions to it. And I was just pointing out that anything that they they want to throw, they cannot, they cannot pick and choose. They cannot turn around and say, it was okay to kill a British soldier in Dublin in 1920, but it wasn't okay to kill a British soldier two weeks after Bloody Sunday in Derry. 
They can't they can't have it both ways. And by the way, they don't live there. They weren't in Derry. They don't know what it's like. Uh, so and they and what they do is they latch on to they latched on to the SDLP for many years. Dublin government was able to orientate its policy towards the north around the SDLP. And the SDLP were, in, in my opinion, you know, they, 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 were, they were too compromised and didn't stand up enough, didn't uh, challenge the state enough. Uh, and one of the reasons, of course, once the, the IRA element of it was removed from the situation was that people turned around and said, well, we like the Simpson argument. We like the way they are quite robust with the British and the Unionists. And indeed, last year, I mean, one of the things one of the, the, the things that we experienced last year was that after five or six years of Sinn Féin continually turning the other cheek to the DUP in the North, uh, after all of the things they reneged on that was promised, uh, Martin McGuinness eventually decided that was it. That was it. We can't go on anymore until these people respect us and are prepared to deal with us as equals. And when the institutions down, the Sinn Féin vote shut up in the North. It was, in fact, there was only one seat separating the DUP from Sinn Féin in the Assembly. And the Unionists, for the first time in the 98-year 98 year history of this state, lost their majority in the North. So, both as a result of demographics, and other changes that are taking place, and the threat to the economic situation in the 26 counties as a result of Brexit, there is a, a curious situation developing where many of our interests coincide, where the interests of the Irish government coincide with the economic interests of the, not just the nationalists in the North, because 56% of the people in the North voted to remain in the European Union, and that means many unionists were among those 56%. So we have a situation now where there is a sense of purpose, a sense of coming together, that we that, that we're focused now on you know, on this on this threat threat to our nation, threat to institute a hard border, which we've fought long and hard to get rid of, which is part of the Good Friday Agreement. So this is the next this is the next front in, in, in the battle, as I see it. A political battle against the British government for what they're trying to do because because of certain people in England, uh, you know, are, are xenophobic. A big dimension to that that Brexit referendum vote was they don't like immig- immigrants. Why should why should we suffer because of English people in the south of England don't like don't like uh, uh, black people coming into their country or don't like East Europeans coming into their country? Why should we suffer for that? We've suffered enough. Danny, do you think, and and just on that and on the DUP. In a way, almost uh, maybe it's a crude way of putting it. From from almost a PR point of view, do you think these events that are unfolding and almost the spotlight being shined on Arlene Foster and and the DUP, from a kind of PR piece, do you think it's actually a positive that now the spotlight is on them because people who are maybe more moderate or people who wouldn't necessarily have been of a nationalist persuasion previously are starting to kind of see hang on a second these lads are, are dinosaurs these lads are are, are are quite frankly bonkers to, to come out with some of the things that are coming out with and you know one of the examples being that with brexit they're talking about how there has to be a complete parallel and as it is over in in england and over in the mainland it has to be in the north you know and that's all fine and well except for when you look at things like 
gay marriage and abortion where the DUP suddenly say, well, no, we'll have it our way here now. So is it a case now that we're starting to see these kind of cracks emerge and that it's starting to unfold in a way that the DUP won't be able to scramble back? Well, the DUP, when they did this deal with Theresa May, uh, you know, the price, the price of their 10 votes, the price, it was very interesting because the, the British media then started to put under the microscope, who are these people? Mm. And Twitter was great were, for that period of time. Unbelievable. <laughs> they were just saying, what? I trust a Muslim to go to the shops and get me a bottle of milk. Right? Uh, Sammy uh, Wilson, Gazer Poofs, uh, yeah. Arling, uh, well, uh, Peter Robinson's wife said that they can be cured, gays can be cured. Uh, I mean, people were just astonished. The people in, in, in Britain who'd never heard of them before or properly. Uh, we're now seeing exactly what they were like, but it's not only that. The DUP, you see, the DUP are saying we have to, we have to follow the UK. The majority of people in the UK voted for Brexit, and because we're 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 uh, British, this is the way it has to go. But then when you say to them, but in Britain, the law is the women have the right to choose, uh, gays can get married. Oh no 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 no! That's a devolved matter for us over here, and they're in the minority. <laughs> it's absolutely they're in the minority. Crazy. But they've got the power to do it. And not only do they have the power to do it, even if there was an executive back, they have said that they would use, the petition of concern was introduced consciously 20 years ago to stop the major unionist parties from discriminating against nationalists. That's why it was brought in, as mm. a protection. But they have abused it, and they would use it. They have said that they will use it to stop uh, equal marriage and to, to stop any liberalisation on abortion, they have said it. Uh, so that's what that's that's what we have to we have to fight. But there's a lot of very progressive people w- within the unionist community. I, I'm actually friends of people, former British soldiers, former RUC men, who are all very much open to a new Ireland, where we come together either on economic interest grounds, but that they see they see themselves as being Irish and less and less as being British as a result of what, what they see happening in Britain, but also because of what the DUP are doing. Mm. Danny, I just want to ask you, um, in relation to um, Sinn Féin down south, Mary, Ma- uh, Mary Lou MacDonald's popularity over the last couple of weeks um, has completely soared. Um, she had a great campaign with the, the recent referendum. Just wondering, in relation to Gerry Adams stepping down, and in relation to the future with Mary Lou Macdonald, what what will what will Jerry be remembered for? Do you think in the history books? Well, he's still a very active uh, TD, and he's still a very active ambassador. Uh, I mean, I I, I, I would socialise with him uh, at least once a week, uh, and I, I know his calendar is incredible. We, we're, we're, still waiting, we're still waiting for him oh. to call us back as well, then. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that to him. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, Jerry's uh, people's view of Jerry depends on it's, it's coloured by their own politics. There's no doubt about it. I think that he has been, he's been everything that the IRA has done wrong. He gets blamed for, regardless if, of his input or contribution, or uh, was he an apologist at some stage or other. He gets blamed wrongly on everything. And I know for a fact that had it not been for the likes of him 
and Martin McInnes and others who aren't uh, that much named in the media and yourself if it had, they would not have been able to they would not have been able to bring a broad uh, majority of the Republican movement on this journey remember we're a movement that has been uh, persistently involved in splits and feuds you know the civil war in the 20s the splits of Sierra Island in the 30s the sticky Provo split in the 60s the ANLA split and the Earth splitting from the officials uh, and often it has, it has resulted in feuding and in death and, and Jerry Adams and Mark McGuinness were able to bring the bulk of the movement to make I'm confident that 90% of the ex-prisoners support this project of course a minority didn't and opposed uh, Jerry Adams and that's where, where the Omar Bowman came from uh, 20 years ago as well this, this August so mm. he, he was he, yes he was uh, a, a he was a, a resistance fighter against the British he was a political leader but he's also seen uh, internationally as a, as a person up there like with, with Nelson Mandela Yasser Arafat Del Castro. I mean, the ANC so respected Jerry Adams that he was one of the few international uh, personalities in the world uh, who was invited to carry his coffin at the time of, of his funeral. And similarly, you know, he became friendly with uh, Fidel Castro. But uh, to me, uh, Jerry Adams is an extremely important person, and I don't know what it would have been like without him. You know, I was, I was in prison with him. We went through the hunger strikes together. I was with him minutes after he was shot in, in 1984. Uh, I, I just, I just think that his, his contribution has been invaluable. And with the future with Mary Lou Macdonald, I think it's brilliant. Uh, not only that, I mean, Jerry stepped out at the right time. I mean, uh, because I thought, I think that, I, I think that Mary Lou's contribution particularly on this uh, Eighth Amendment campaign, that she was much more articulate, much more tuned in on the issues, you know, had a much more commanding position uh, than Jerry would have had. Jerry, I mean, obviously, is extremely strong on the subject of, of negotiations, on the subjects of poli policy and politics, but not down into that type of detail. She knew everything about that campaign. She was unflappable. Uh, in the studios, live on there, contesting, arguing with her opponents, and I mean, she she spent the last twenty years in the north quite a bit. She would be as well known in Ballymurphy as in Ballymun, and that's what makes her a national leader. And I just think it's, it's wonderful that a, a young woman uh, is the leader of our struggle in our movement. Danny, you you, you touched on it there as well, and just. Focusing as well, then I suppose on the term national leader, and I suppose that leads into a question regarding a United Ireland. Um, look, I mean, I, I'd consider myself uh, a melancholy moderate. I'd be one of the people who, you know, wouldn't be a fan of, of Jerry Adams' history in terms of you know what has been said and what has been done up as far as a respect to, to to the last that he did take the peace talks where they went and, and the work that was done with Martin McGuinness but ultimately I do think he needed to step down uh, for Sinn Féin and for the Republican movement to, to, to go to the next level so to speak so with the United Ireland well, I mean I can understand 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, no, I can understand. I can understand you, you saying that. I mean, for example, uh, just in terms of of uh, media discussion, there's there's no point in the media trying to hang on Mary Lou things that happened when we were active in the Republican struggle. Mm. So in that sense, in that sense, uh, a, a new page has been turned over, a new chapter is beginning, and that is good because what Mary Lou needs to do is deal with today's issues. And of course, some of today's issues are a legacy of the past, namely yeah. our unresolved national question. But there is much to be done. The difference the difference now, of course, is that where I live, I'm speaking to you from Anderson to West Belfast, I no longer feel vanquished. This state is no longer the orange state. It has been transformed. Mm. So we're we're on we're in a good position. We still got a lot of work to do. I want to see North and South harmonised. I don't want to see an Ireland where the fr- my friends who currently describe themselves as unionists or British or Northern Irish, where they would feel vanquished. So there's a there's a lot lot of work to be done. Uh, talking to those people in conversation to work out what they would like yeah. to see, how they would like to see a new Ireland. So I think basically we are looking at a, a six. 26 county arrangement uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, but increasingly harmonising and maximising our wealth and our talent. Yeah, you more or less answered where I was going with that in terms of how how to you know make the unionists uh, start to get on board. But but yeah, I I definitely agree with what you were saying there. Did you have a do you have a, a year in mind, Danny, um, in relation to whether you think? United Ireland is going to happen? No. No. Uh, and, and and I'm pretty relaxed about it. I mean, obviously, I would like it to have happened back in 1970, yeah. but that's not, that's not the case. It, it, it'll happen, and as long as it happens, you see, you wouldn't want it to happen precipitately that it would trigger fear within the unionist community or would create enough uh, uh, passion that loyalist paramilitaries would panic, uh, would come under pressure from their supporters, or would lead their supporters into doing something silly, which would lead to a, a chain reaction. So it has to be transparent. Everybody has to know what's happening at a particular time. There could be no secret deals. There could be no little compact between either Sinn Féin and the British, or the Dublin and the British, or Dublin and Sinn Féin. It has to be out in the open. And that way, people can make a judgment about the merits of it or they can object to it they can oppose it do you think as long as sorry sorry Danny I was going to say do you you think Jeremy Corbyn has a a bit to play well I mean I know Jeremy Corbyn Uh, I brought him over here four months after he was first elected in 1983 did a tour of West Belfast said a friend of mine I've met him subsequently on several occasions, uh, but I still I still have to remain uh, a little bit cynical because often when people get into power, and the British establishment has a way of moulding people, uh, particularly prime ministers, I, I I I certainly would hope that he would go much further than Tony the, chan- the chances that Tony Blair took at that particular time in 1997 and 1998. Uh, I know his instincts 
for for United Ireland and for a British withdrawal. But again, his his manoeuvrability will be circumscribed by events, by the strength of his majority, uh, by what's happening in terms of Brexit, what's happening on this on this island. So there's a, there's a lot of factors to take into consideration. But he is a he is a, a genuine and sincere uh, politician. Yeah, uh, Danny. We're, we're just about out of time with you. Thanks very much for being so generous with your time, um, first okay, and foremost. Um, but, but really, really enjoyed that chat. Um, and th- there's a million and one things that we didn't get to talk to you about. So, um, apologies for that. But um, if if people want to yes, kind of all the books, all the books I've written, you never mentioned one of them. <laughs> well, we mention them now. That's what we're getting to. I was going to say, if people want to, you know, learn more about you or hear more from you, they can get you on social media. But also, they can pick up one of your books if, if pick up the pick up all the books. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, I, I my uh, my my third novel, which I began writing in the hitch box of Long Cash, uh, it's twenty years old. Out of print for a few years now, so it's been reissued this summer. And it's called The Wrong Man. So maybe everybody will go out and buy it this summer. Brilliant, definitely. We'll, we'll give that another plug when it gets released. Um, and yeah. you can check out your website, dannymorrison.com, or your at Malloy1916 on Twitter as well. That's right, perfect, That's right. Danny. I just actually, just one thing is after coming to my head, and um, I always do this, Danny. Sorry, at the end of a podcast, okay, I'll let you have it. Um, down in, in our area, we have um a woman by the name of Rita O'Hare. What? Yes. How influential is Rita in all of this? Rita uh, is, has been pretty central to a lot of Republican thinking for a long, long time. Uh, whenever she came out of Limerick Prison, uh, she started to write for me and then Publock. Uh, later she became the editor of Unpublock, and then later she became the director of publicity. And for this, for maybe 15 years now, she's probably she's been in Washington as Sinn Féin's representative. She's met all the all of the senators, all the Congress men and women, lots of presidents and attorney generals, uh, those in charge of the State Department. Rita O'Hare is a brilliant uh, revolutionary, not just a Republican, she's a revolutionary. Rita's Rita's father was a, uh, a Protestant from East Belfast who was a bit of a communist. And whenever I, I, I now live in the street that Rita was born in, in West Belfast. And Billy McCulloch, Rita's father, came to us every Sunday. And he was just a brilliant, brilliant man. But you know, British government was so petty-minded, so spiteful. Even though they, 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 they entered into an agreement not to try and extradite Rita, back to the north of Ireland while she was in Washington or while she was in South Africa meeting with Mandela. They would not allow her to go to her father's funeral when Billy died 10 years ago. Oh my God. Jesus. It says it all, right? Yeah. I'm glad we ended it yeah, on Rita. I, I would have been, uh, so. been kind of gone mad that I forgot to mention Rita. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Graham. Right. Thanks so much, Danny. Danny, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very okay. much for your time, man. Take care. There you are, Merlo. Done it. You happy? Yeah, it's off the bucket list. That's it. That's it. That was a good chat. Good chat, man. Brilliant chat. There was times where it was um, just so engrossed that that uh, it happens a few times. It hasn't happened in a while mm. where you're just so engrossed with the topic. It happened with Michael Finkel, uh, the Michael Finkel oh, episode. That great. That was one of my favorite episodes I ever done. I was so engrossed. I was forgetting to answer, ask questions. Mm. 
and that happened again with Danny because you could listen to him all bloody day. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. so knowledgeable. Remembering dates and mm. I love people that do that. Yeah, you can tell. Like, I mean, obviously, look, he's lived it, you know? And, and that's something that, like, as we said in the kind of preamble to it, like, I don't necessarily politically agree with absolutely everything, um, but I, I can respect that and I can acknowledge it. And, mm. you know... It, people don't listen to this to hear my opinions they, yeah, yeah. they listen to hear people's stories and people's take on events that they've lived seen and, and done and if, if Jesus any, when if, it comes if to if we can make more people nationalists after listening to this it'll be a, it'll can be a you ca- can you please calm down <laughs> if we can make republicans out of this I, I was waiting for you if to we t- can make republicans out of this interview yeah my job here is done mic drop I'm only joking. I, I, I was waiting for you to turn this into a recruitment campaign. <laughs> I thought you were going to put on camouflage and pull down a balaclava a lot earlier now, but you've done it well done. But as the, as the years come on, there's more of an appetite for United Ireland. I, yeah, yeah, to an extent. And it's it's purely on social values and equality. And like you mentioned, and it was a brilliant mm. question about you know gay marriage and people seeing and stuff People like seeing the DUP for the... Lawyers and yeah. mad things that they are like. like as Danny said, there's only one open storm, and although the, the government's not going at the moment, but there is only one seat between them. I mean, 56% yeah. wanted to remain uh, in the EU, so can that 56% be translated into votes yeah. against the DUP? You see, the, probably like, not Sinn Fein, but against the DUP, against the DUP, yeah. Like, and, and this is the thing there, there is this kind of balance that has to be found between you know. The, the appetite for a United Ireland or, or in whatever way shape or form that might be but there also has to be and as Danny pointed out the consideration of there is another community there that isn't necessarily nationalist this isn't like I know you you hear some people you see some people saying oh the nationalist population now it's you know above 50% so there should be a, a referendum or there should be a vote as if like 51% versus 49% is it's all it takes well. to no, but that's what triggers you know, that's what triggers the, re- the, the vote in the Good Friday Agreement but I know, but it's not as simple as that. It's no, not as I know, but technically that, speaking, you know I, mean? I think that's what they're referencing. It's like, in the Good Friday Agreement, if the majority is Catholics mm. by a certain period of time, that's what triggers a referendum in the six counties. Like That I, was that was the that was the condition in which... I, I just... One of the conditions. I think, honestly, I really think the best thing to help the nationalist cause right now is to let the DUP run themselves into the ground. Because yeah. that's what they're doing. Yeah. Like, we, we don't know how Brexit is going to unfold. No. You know, but one thing that is alarmingly clear is that the longer the DUP hold that kind of kingmaker position that they have for Theresa May's government, yeah. the more idiotic and backward and just archaic they come across. Absolutely. To the point where people who, who didn't really have an interest or people who had very little reason to acknowledge anything in terms of what the DUP were doing or what the DUP were saying, are now kind of looking and going, what in the name it, of God is God? Like, the, be, the best thing of last year the, to come out of Twitter was the Brits finding out who the DUP were. DUP movies was my favourite hashtag. It was it was just brilliant. Like, you know, to, to, um, you know, Actually, no, brilliant is the wrong word, but it was sad in a sense as well because... This is the, some of the stuff that was coming out is actually their views on the world their, and their yeah, values. Yeah, I know. Yeah, which is like it's almost if there wasn't real lives involved, you'd almost laugh at it as some sort of TV and comedy. You know? Absolutely. Like, do you do you see do you see a situation where um, gay uh, a gay unionist, gay loyalist unionist, mm. 
and they're looking on and they're kind of going, Jesus, down south, you're allowed to marry now. Do you see, how, do you, how are they thinking? Like, I don't know. Are they I, still, I don't know if they're, are they, are I don't they, if they're looking at it. One, are they openly gay? Are they afraid to come out? Well, well I've no idea, to be honest with you. Know, you. I, yeah, I've absolutely no they're, idea. They're, and I there don't are scenarios like, that are probably but, live at the moment. But yeah, I'd imagine they have to be looking at, you know, the mainland for which they are, as you said, loyalist, loyal to, mm. so to speak. They have to be looking at, you know, um, the UK or the GB and that they have to be kind of saying like uh, well if I if I'm over there which is where we kind of want well, to be a part of I, I can do it and if the so called enemy down the road would allow it. me to do it why won't the people who yeah. are in charge at home allow me to do it it's ludicrous it, it's bonkers but yeah look it was a good chat I enjoyed it brilliant um, chat it was good to get, get a different perspective than my own <laughs> yeah he put the word in the jerry for us <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna have try to try three years. I'm gonna have to get some sort of right wing lunatic on to try. You got Michael Graham. One guest, Graham. You've had how many lefties on? <laughs> About four hundred and three in the one hundred and forty-seven episodes that Up we've the done. Left. I'm definitely gonna have to get some sort of mad right wing agent on now. Just not not that I agree with them. I'm not yeah. right winger myself, but just I wouldn't mind getting Sammy Wilson on. I'd love to get Sammy Wilson on. He probably wouldn't talk to us because the code on his phone would read 353 and be like <laughs> yeah. absolutely not, not yeah his phone will just <laughs> spontaneously combust Most, yeah right. anyway right we've where been are com- we we've been coming to you from Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel the home of the Bottles Barbecue etc etc lads check it out and go to FitzpatrickCastle.com if you want to listen to us you can listen to us on any podcast provider all you have to do is search WTS pod you can also go to our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash WTS pod Ireland you can check us out on Twitter at WTS pod um, and you can check out our website wtspod.com did I miss something? Graham Merrill American yes 10 out of 10 Sheena Sheena Pod I know what I'm cutting your mic I'm cutting your mic I'm cutting your mic I was going to say yeah, your bolster that's it like you know what I mean like spinach to Popeye republicanism to Merrill just it all it all boosts them uh, lads, thanks for listening. Thanks to Danny Morrison. Um, but until next week, clear eyes, all hearts, hand deals, good luck. Chuggy, air love.